Welcome, 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 everyone, to this week's episode of New Perspectives. I'm your host, Max Huber, and on this episode, Ariana and I chat with Milton Posner over Zoom about his piece titled, The United States is Not a Real Democracy. Milton explains many different ways that American institutions prevent the United States from having genuine representative democracy. That includes voter suppression laws, gerrymandering, and the Electoral College, as well as how the fundamental structures of the Senate and the Supreme Court undermine our democratic values. Milton also offers up potential solutions to these problems, and why he thinks fixing democracy is key to addressing many other issues. As usual, Milton also joins us for Class Struggle, hosted by Ariana Bennett, to tell us about one of his favorite classes and professors at Northeastern. As always, I recommend going online to nupoliticalreview.com in the national section to read Milton's piece for yourself. And without further ado, let's get into the show. Welcome to this week's episode of New Perspectives. I'm your host, Max Huber, he, him pronouns, and this week I'm joined on the mic by my co-host, Ariana Bennett. Ariana, introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. I'm Ariana Bennett. I'm one of the podcast producers. Max, thank you so much for having me this week. Fantastic. And this week, our guest is none other than the editor-in-chief currently at NUPR, Milton Posner. Milton, if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself. Who that currently, I feel like I'm about to be deposed. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Milton Posner. He, him. I am a fourth-year journalism and political science combined major, and I am, for the moment, the editor-in-chief of Nuper. Great. We're very happy to have you on the show, finally. And you're here to talk about your article, The United States is Not a Real Democracy, which is a, a fascinating kind of culmination of a lot of the work you've done at Nuper about the issues in the United States that makes us, even though we say we're a democracy, not really that democratic. Do you want to go ahead and tell our listeners why you think America is not a democracy? I say the United States is not a real democracy because there are any number of endemic problems with the way votes are translated into representation, or more accurately, the way they are not translated into representation. Some of these problems were initially kind of baked into the Constitution, and demographic shifts, population shifts made them worse. Others, politicians made them worse, and they did it more often than not to cement their own power. On the side of the constitutionally baked problems, you have things like the Senate, basically the Senate's entire representative model where you have less populous states that gain disproportionately high representation because every state has to have the same representation. And you see that manifesting the electoral college disparities between states as well. On the side of deliberate actions by politicians, you have things like garden variety voter suppression, uh, especially voter ID laws that disproportionately disenfranchise Democrat-leaning voters of color, and things like gerrymandering, where politicians dictate the boundaries and therefore dictate the outcomes of elections years in advance. So it's a mix of the things that were there from the beginning and the things that we've put there that are either obstacles to people voting or 
we change the way we sort and group their votes to diminish or elevate certain voters. Yeah, there's there's quite a laundry list of of issues at hand that you bring up, which are, I think, all poignant deviations from like the spirit of democracy. I know that uh, one of the the issues get, that gets brought up a lot is DC statehood, the idea that you have this notable metropolitan city of people who are taxpaying Americans who do not have representation at the national level. And it's not just DC. It winds up being the territories too that apart from like DC not having a voting representative in Congress also can't vote for president. And the challenge that you have there is it's very easy to ignore those people, especially the people in the territories, because they don't have a voice. They don't have influence. They they can't they can speak for themselves, but no one is obligated to listen because you're not afraid of losing their votes. So you need that kind of pressure. And it's not to say that statehood is necessarily the answer for all of them. I think it should be up to them what they want to do. If they vote for statehood or in the case of the territories, independence or some kind of amended special status, whatever path to equal representation they prefer is, I think, whatever the federal government should do. But the status quo where American citizens who can be called on to to die for their country don't get to vote for the president that sends them there is an obviously goofy way of doing things. Yeah, obviously not in keeping with the spirit of, of some of these founding principles we, we hold oh so dearly. So if you're listening to this and you're interested in more of the details on this bevy of anti-democratic features of American democracy, definitely check out Milton's piece for yourself, as well as there's been a lot of pieces in NUPR about these kinds of issues. So I definitely recommend checking them out for yourself. Milton, my question for you, obviously this is an important issue, but what got you really motivated to look into this and to write about it for the mag? For me, it was a culmination of a theme that I'd been exploring throughout my time as a Newper writer. It started with a piece called The Good Kind of Popularity Contest, where I first made the argument for a national popular vote over the winner-take-all system within the Electoral College that we use now. Um, from there, it progressed to, there was a piece I wrote called You Think Your Job Interview is Tough about presidential debates and how the rules governing them either facilitated or didn't facilitate actual debate. Moving from there, there was a piece about uh, term limits for Supreme Court justices, and then finally onto a ranked choice voting piece last fall. So throughout my time writing for Newper, I've tried to explore issues of of representation, of democratic mechanisms, of how the ways we vote and how our the ways our votes are counted influence outcomes. And more often than not, the conclusion that I came to in writing these pieces was that the voting public was being shortchanged. That before you can expect the will of the majority, the wants of the public, to actually become applicable, enforceable policy, you need to translate their votes into representation. And that wasn't happening. And it's still not happening. And in any number of respects, you can make the case that it's never happened. And this is the one issue that underlines everything. If you do not have this, you have absolutely nothing. And I, I get into this in the in the new piece, 
you build a, a democracy on the idea that you can overthrow the government at the ballot box at scheduled intervals. If you don't have that, it's not to say that you're inherently guaranteeing an, an armed uprising years down the road. But when you predicate a system on civil regime change, and then you make it impossible for that to happen, then you run the risk of a regime change that isn't so civil. And so it's imperative to solve these problems or else no other problem gets solved. So speaking of this lack of representation right now, we're currently faced with the Supreme Court that has three justices on it, confirmed by a president who lost the popular vote, and then they were confirmed by a biased Senate. You mentioned that you had a piece that you've written previously about Supreme Court term limits. Would you like to elaborate on that just for a little bit? Sure. So that was a piece I published this past September called Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the Incivility of Strategizing for Death. And the title kind of explains what prompted it. I was tired of of the kind of political squabbling that I saw on both sides. But more than that, I was tired of hearing people whose views I respected, kind of hoping for people to die. It all struck me as very morbid and toxic, and it was something I wanted no part of. The problem is, you have Supreme Court justices who are, are joining the court younger and staying longer because they understand the stakes here. And ideological outcomes are a big motivator, even for those who, who claim to adhere to more originalist, textualist philosophies. It's impossible to not care about policy outcomes. So given that, I thought it was prudent to implement term limits for Supreme Court justices. It's constitutionally tricky, but not necessarily off the table. What you do, and this is, uh, Andrew Yang made a, a similar proposal when he was running. I, my version of it is different in a couple of, of respects, but it's mostly the same thing, is 18-year terms for Supreme Court justices, staggered so that an opening arises every two years. Every presidential term comes with two, you can adapt the timing of exactly when it happens to accommodate resignations, deaths, um, as they arise. But the advantages are, you know each president's going to get two. There's less point in trying to obfuscate, stonewall, stall the nominations. And you keep the court in slightly better touch with the public. Right. It can it can represent it can come closer to representing the public we have instead of the public that we had 25 years before. It's not bad necessarily that the court is a more conservatively inclined institution, not politically, but in terms of just its demeanor. It is not often going to be the one that brings about striking, you know, paradigm shattering change. It doesn't necessarily have to be, but it should reflect the public. A little bit better, especially because these are unelected positions. And you can do it constitutionally. It's a tricky workaround, but what it comes down to is as long as you don't diminish their pay, you could make them senior status federal judges on lower courts after their term on the Supreme Court is up. Because you can't take a federal judgeship from them, but if you move them to a different one with similar pay, it's arguably constitutional because the constitution does not specify exactly what type of work judicial work is done during a life term so it would be prudent i think to implement those kinds of term limits and it's not like the argument gets floated a lot that you don't want them looking for their next job they'd be making more than four and a half million dollars over the 18 years they're on the court 
they can make all the money they want from book deals and speaking fees after they go. These these are not people who are necessarily going to be cash strapped by the time they leave and, and looking for some kind of lucrative private sector job. It's not that you don't worry about it, but I think the worry is, is overblown. Yeah, you you actually anticipated my my follow-up question, which is about the rationale for a life life term, which you see is not being a that that significant of a rationale in light of the the system that you're considering here. Yes, and for what it's worth, I don't think this is something that needs to be implemented on federal district courts or appeals courts. I'm more okay with life terms remaining a thing for those courts because you're setting regional precedents at best. And you don't have this whole idea of you need a national, some kind of national mandate to be making the rulings that you're making. Effectively, that's what you get when the Senate confirms them. But because you're not establishing sweeping national precedents, I think it's less important that you be forced out at a certain time. What another thing, by the way, that establishing term limits would do is it would remove the incentive for presidents to appoint exceedingly young justices, and you get more experienced justices as a result. Whatever you think of their politics, you look at Neil Gorsuch, spent a good deal of time on a federal appeals circuit. Dislike his politics if you want, he's a qualified jurist. You look at Brett Kavanaugh, whatever you think of his politics, whatever you think of what appeared to be a credible allegation of of sexual assault, he was a qualif- he was qualified in terms of being a jurist. Amy Coney Barrett had spent about three years on the bench when she was named to the Supreme Court. You'd like to see more experience there, and you understand that one of the motivators is that she is not yet 50 years old, and that she would serve for a long time. If you have an 18-year term limit, you're less incentivized to name exceedingly young people and you can look for someone with more experience. So it comes down to setting this precedent for national representation, but problematically um, implementing these term limits doesn't necessarily change the fact of a biased Senate. So you make quite a point in your piece saying that cows are better represented than people in the Senate. And so if aliens were then tasked with coming down to Earth and figuring out what the Senate was made for, it was more likely they'd come to the conclusion that it represented cows than people. So how do we go about fixing that? Well, fixing it is the challenging thing because whether or not you require a constitutional amendment to do so, and it gets into a much trickier conversation. The nature of the problem is the founders, in their finite wisdom, said two senators for every state. This was part of the Great Compromise. The challenge was, at that time, the disparity between the most populated and the least populated soon-to-be states was 13 to 1. Today, the highest disparity is 67 to 1. And so this is an area where you don't necessarily blame the founders. Back then, the country was the East Coast. There were about 4 million people living in it. Now you have a country that has expanded westward and has about 80 times as many people. So you don't blame them for not having infinite wisdom and foresight. But you also maybe reevaluate that it was a good idea to do that in the first place. Or, or rather, you reevaluate that it's a good idea to keep doing it now. Um, 
you have a you have a majority of the country if you combine the most populous states until you had a majority of the people who would have 18 senators to represent them it just doesn't make sense and the problem is that it's getting worse there are some estimates that indicate that by 2050 you will have 70% of the population living in 15 states meaning 70% of the population has 30% of the senators and 30% of the population has 70 senators. It, it's not viable. It, it's not viable now. It hasn't been viable for a while, and it's getting increasingly unviable. This is not to say that it's always a bad idea to have some kind of skew to your representation. We are not the only country that has it. I think Norway has it to one degree or another. Canada has it in their legislature. But you can't have it be this bad. Because you're normalizing minority rule. You're accepting that you need to have an overwhelming majority of the population to do anything at all. And the filibuster gets in the way because you have, all right, now it's a 60-vote threshold to do anything really meaningful. And you put all of that together and you realize this is giving a disproportionate say to people living in small, sparsely populated states, and there's no exceptionally good reason that it has to be this bad, other than it's how it was drawn up. That's not a good enough reason anymore. Real quick, I, I do want to get to that point again in a second, but I know, Ariana, you mentioned that Milton mentions in his piece that cows are better represented than people. Mm -hmm. Milton, how exactly does that work? So if you examine states as, as blocks and you see okay here are some very sparsely populated states and here are some very populated states right that's that's one set of comparisons then you total up the number of people in each of those groups and then you total the number of cows in each of those groups there are two that look alike there are one that stands out the number of cows and senators are fairly closely aligned the number of people is not. And once once you notice this, this is all in a piece um, that the Washington Post featured a couple of years ago. Once you notice that, it's hard to hear a reasonable defense of the way it is. Because again, you can accept some amount of, of skew, right? For the sake of you don't want the will of rural voters to be completely overwhelmed. That tends to be the, the case. This isn't that. This is letting them dictate policy for the entire country. That's increasingly what it's going to be. And it's increasingly letting the Republican Party, who for the moment, or which for the moment dominates there, to hold the government for ransom based on a popular majority that they have not at any given moment earned. Okay, I see what you're saying about how mathematically cows better track senatorial representation than human beings Something really good that you do in your piece is that you don't, you keep the party politics out of it. The issues you look at are institutional issues that are not necessarily tied to either party. However, in my perception of it, and as you alluded to earlier, it seems to be the case that a lot of these institutional anti-democratic measures, let's call them, tend to benefit Republicans 
more often and to a greater effect than Democrats. Do you have any insight into why that happens to be the case? Or is it just the way the, the pieces fell? In some respects, it was the way the pieces fell. Because not only have you did you not have a Republican, or for that matter, what we now know as the Democratic Party when the Constitution was founded, the parties when they were founded did not stand for the things they now stand for. They did not appeal necessarily to the people that they now appeal to. It's not to say that you, you could have gone into the, the, the founding convention and say, no, this is going to benefit the Republican Party. They just look at you and go, what the hell is the Republican Party? The ones that are worrying are the areas where the parties have manufactured advantages for themselves. In the case of gerrymandering, both parties have done it when they've had the opportunity, largely because they fared well in the 2010 midterm elections and got a disproportionate or, or got a, a larger share of state legislatures. It was right after the 2010 census. Republicans got more of a chance to do it. It's not necessarily a, a saying one party was more or less moral than the other in this respect, but because Republicans had that chance, they gerrymandered to a much larger degree in the wake of that census than did Democrats, and they're poised to do it again after the 2020 census because, again, they fared well in in state-level races. When you gerrymander, you are deciding the outcome of an election years in advance because you, it, it's done with a system of, of what's generally referred to as packing and cracking, where you pack as many of your opponent's voters into one area as you can. You concede that district. I'm going to let you win that by a wide, wide margin. And then you have as many districts that you can win with, say, 55, 60% of the vote as possible. It also manifests in voter ID laws, which have become a really hot topic for people spreading lies about how voting works and whether people commit fraud. They don't. Not in the way that you're thinking. This isn't to say that voter fraud never happens, but it's more common that a person's struck by lightning than it is for a person to impersonate someone else at the polls to try to cast extra ballots. And that's what voter ID laws are supposed to take care of. The Heritage Foundation uh, conservative group likes to hawk voter fraud is a serious problem they have a database where you can you can find you can sort by type of fraud they found 13 voter impersonation fraud cases over the last 40 years this is not actually an issue this is a a minuscule minuscule fraction of the total number of ballots cast it's actually a pretense to require the sort of photo id that poorer voters older voters non-white voters find it tougher to obtain. So a law that might seem racially neutral on its face does not produce a racially neutral outcome. And the politicians passing these laws know that. This is not a mystery anymore. Courts have essentially told them, you need to stop because it's obvious what you're doing. The problem is the Supreme Court isn't necessarily one of them. In 2013, the Supreme Court didn't strike down the Voting Rights Act but they, they gutted it. They made it impossible to enforce. What it, the, the detailed version is the Voting Rights Act had a preclearance formula. And what it did when it was passed in the mid-60s was it said, here are jurisdictions with histories of racist voter suppression. And it required those jurisdictions to get federal preclearance before they changed their election laws or their voting laws. 
In 2013, the Supreme Court struck it down. And one of the pillars of their argument in doing so was the preclearance mechanism had worked. Voter suppression did not exist on quite the same scale as it had when the law was passed. And because it was outdated, it was unreasonable to subject states to this. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in what now seems very prescient, said, this is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. They got this preclearance mechanism, and what it did was it basically left citizens to sue after the elections, the problematic elections had happened. You have jurisdictions now, those same jurisdictions who would have been subject to preclearance passing voter uh, suppressive voting laws, and you have now 2 million people in the United States who could vote eight years ago who can't vote now because these jurisdictions have passed those laws. So the the game is up. The game has been up for a while, and it's. I don't think anyone's actually being fooled by this, except maybe the Supreme Court. It's disturbingly obvious, I think, t- to me, to a lot of people, how brazen these these voter suppression tactics are and how just callous they are to to any kind of professed faith in democracy to just deny people the vote for these absolutely ludicrous pretenses there was one law that that got a good deal of attention this was a law that was passed recently in georgia that restricted any number of things because a, a lot of what these laws will do that apart from voter id restrictions they'll purge voter rolls when it's not really necessary. For those of you listening at home, no, dead people are not voting en masse. Um, They will move voting sites around in a way that often disenfranchises voters of color. And again, it's Republican politicians. This is one area where you can't pretend that there's fault on equal sides, or even like with gerrymandering, where you can pretend Democrats do it less, but they do it when they get the opportunity. The, The voter suppression tactics almost always flow one way here. And it's Republican politicians who understand that they will be better served in future elections if people with dark skin are not allowed to vote for Democrats. It sounds oversimplified, and but it's not oversimplified all that much. They understand how these tactics work, and they understand that in a country that is becoming more and more brown over time, partially because of immigration, partially because the children of immigrants are themselves having children at faster rates. They understand that they either have to majorly shift their policy appeal or they have to stop people who look a certain way from voting. I I feel like I've often kind of heard a case made from people on the right that it's just kind of a, a game of party politics that both parties play. Republicans restrict people who can vote on what some people might think are sensible reasons others disagree. And Democrats try to expand the amount of people who can vote because whichever party wins gets more people voting their favor. And it's just a power grab. What do you say to someone who tries to make this equivalency? If the argument is, oh, you only win when people are allowed to vote. um, Yeah, you need to go to a dictionary and look up what democracy means because if you can only win by stopping people from voting it probably means that they don't want you to represent them but even if we take a more well it's not a more merited version of the argument but you take you take the case with voter id laws this is it's being hawked as a solution to a problem that is not really there 
And it's it's an intuitive thing that it's not really there. This is something, you know, voter impersonation fraud is something you can go to prison for. It, are Max, are you going to risk prison time to cast a couple of extra votes? No. It doesn't seem worth it. The idea that this is a, a rational risk-reward calculation to go to the polls and impersonate someone else, there's a reason it happens once every couple years that the fraud rate is so low that you need a decimal point and a smattering of zeros before you can get to anything you'd call an integer. It's not a problem in the way that it's being hawked as by the people passing voter ID laws. It's a pretense to limit people who you know aren't going to vote for you from voting at all. In addition to just the outright voter suppression tactics benefiting Republicans over Democrats, there's also a a phenomenon often called the big sort of liberal Democrat voter types moving to dense urban areas, conservative Republican types moving to the less dense areas, and exacerbating the issues you mentioned earlier about the way representation in the Senate is laid out. Is that, do you see that as like another driving force behind worsening representation? It is, and especially with respect to the Senate, but then again, how, how that Senate representation automatically means the Electoral College is skewed as a result. This isn't, I, I don't think it should necessarily be framed in every conversation as liberals in cities and conservatives in rural areas. That is a lot of what is happening. But it can't necessarily be about one party or another in that instance, because just because the Republican Party appeals to rural voters more now, just because the Democratic Party appeals to urban voters more now, does not mean that that's how it will always be. And it doesn't make it any more or less right based on which party has an unfair advantage. You need to translate votes into representation. Giving a Wyomingite, and it's weird to me that that's what they're called, three and a half to four times as much representation in the Electoral College and 67 times as much representation in the Senate as any given Californian is not accurate representation. You can accept some skew a a little bit. A lot of it is a problem, and now it's turned into a systemic problem. We've got Republican legislators proposing solutions to problems that don't exist. But these voter suppression problems clearly do exist. And Milton, you go in to these solutions in your piece. So please, could you lay out a few of those that you think are going to be the most successful or you think would be the most likely that we'd see in the near future? It's a tricky question because some of these solutions require politicians to seed the tools of power to, you know, they can use these tools to cement their own power. They have to choose to do the opposite. In some ways, this can succeed on a local level. In other ways, and more accurately, it hasn't. And you need nationally binding precedents, whether through federal law or more reasonably through court rulings, saying, hey, this violates any number of of democratic egalitarian voting principles you need to restore the Voting Rights Act. This, As the Supreme Court noted, this can be done through an updated formula, but it can also be done 
by the Supreme Court, you know, choosing not to gut voting rights legislation that it acknowledged worked, which was was the really sort of daft part of that decision. For some of the other things we're talking about, you need to get a little bit more creative. In terms of how to deal with the Senate disparities, there are two solutions deserving of consideration in my mind. One is you pass a federal law giving states perpetual consent to divide as long as their population is X times the population of the least populous state. So Wyoming has, let's say, 500,000 people. It's a little more than that, but they have 500,000 people. If you set the, the ratio at 20 to 1, it means that any state with 10 million or more residents can divide into two states as long as they, the state legislature and residents of both halves of the state consent to it. And then at that point, that state, you have two smaller states, and they get, they're closer to being represented in the way they should be. It could be a little bit messy, but we didn't get into a, into a system-wide problem overnight. We are not going to get out of it overnight. The other one, which is a lot more drastic, but perhaps just as warranted, is to do away with the Senate altogether. You can do this with a constitutional amendment. In fact, you have to do it with a constitutional amendment. There is a clause in Article 5 that says amendments cannot deprive states of equal representation in the Senate. My argument is every state is equally represented in a body that does not exist. So I don't think abolition is unconstitutional. A lot of people would disagree with that case, but the point is to not deprive states of representation unfairly relative to other states you abolish the thing and nobody's represented in it so you delegate functions of the senate to the house which is a lot more democratic a lot more fairly representative you can keep the same margins for doing certain tasks impeaching officials ratifying treaties passing legislation uh added bonus there the house does not have a filibuster rule. The Senate was created by accident in 1805. The House did not do away with the previous question motion, and therefore you can actually debate and pass things at this, you know, you can both debate and pass things in the House. So you would actually have a legislature that doesn't stagnate and kill the popular will. That's That's how it goes for the Senate. In terms of other reforms, it would help to implement ranked choice voting. It discourages a lot of the kind of partisan polarization that we've seen because when it's not a lesser of two evils choice, voters can pick third party and independent candidates without feeling like their votes are being wasted because the votes will be reassigned if that candidate loses. You make Democrats and Republicans appeal more positively to more voters because it doesn't look as good to attack someone else. Voters can turn around to someone that they think has a genuine solution. You have more intra-party ideological diversity. Republicans wouldn't necessarily feel like they have to run to their right to avoid getting primaried. Democratic candidates wouldn't necessarily feel like they have to somehow toe a line between the moderate wings and the the, the moderate wing and the progressive wing because the Senate and the Electoral College make them have a wider tent or a wider base just to be competitive. And it actually ensures that the candidate with the most support wins. So 
in all of this, there are solutions you can implement through binding legal precedent. There are solutions you can implement through federal law. There are solutions that you can implement through federal law that would be best kickstarted by states and cities and whatever kind of local jurisdiction adopting it first to give it some momentum. But one way or another, we have to move toward better representation because it's almost unreasonable to expect any other problem to get solved until we do it. So in high school civics, we learned that the Senate is supposed to be the more deliberative body between the House and the Senate to have longer terms, to discuss issues more fully, and to calm the passions of the the House of Representatives. And you're proposing one possible solution is to get rid of the Senate. What do you think we would lose if we were to get rid of the Senate? And is that something that we should not regret losing? We wouldn't lose a whole lot. And no, I don't think we'd regret it. This is not to say that there is no merit to having a bicameral legislature, but there are any number of fully functioning, healthy, robust democracies elsewhere that while they technically have bicameral legislatures, you have a lower house that is far more powerful, where the upper house is a much more minor check. It's not co-equal bodies under one roof. And that leads me to believe that it is entirely possible to have a, have a unicameral legislature and not have democracy fall apart around you. The, the arguments that the Senate is supposed to be more deliberative are kind of undercut by half the senators, for, for lack of a better word, shit-talking it on their way out as nothing gets done here. We aren't passing legislation. People are reading Dr. Seuss and family recipes on the Senate floor because they're talking out a bill. We don't even make them talk it out anymore. We just kind of let them say, okay, I intend to kill this bill because I don't like it. And now all of a sudden you need 60 votes instead of 50. This is not a deliberative body. This has all the order and decorum of a kinder, of an ill-behaved kindergarten class. This is not who we want representing us. And at the same time, and this is one of the points I wanted to hammer home at the end of the article, we don't get to sit here and blame this on politicians, especially when you consider how, how power-hungry someone has to be to try to seek a position like a Senate office in the first place. We have these squabbles. We have these fights because the rules of engagement take us there. It's not a coincidence. It's not that the country hates, you know, one half of the country hates another half of the country this much. It's because our rules of engagement, the rules of elections, the rules of voting, and the rules of democracy take us to extremes. They exacerbate it. So until you fix this, you don't get to act surprised if one half of the Senate refuses to cooperate with the other at any given time. They have no incentive to. Because even when it's a party that got an overwhelming minority of the vote, they still have tools at their disposal and inherent advantages at their disposal to stop the will of the majority. There is a reason that the principles of the filibuster and the the skewed the degree to which the Senate is skewed are not reflected in many European democracies, and it's not a wonder that they don't have these kinds of problems in the way we do. 
it's not an accident. This is where the rules will take us. And this is the rule where the rules will keep taking us, will increasingly take us, unless we overhaul some things. I, I think you make a really interesting and uh, frankly compelling case for at least why we should be considering fundamental changes to the structure of our government and our democracy. This, as radical as some people might think them, you, I'm sure you can imagine that there, there are voices who would say abolishing the Senate does not go far enough to realizing true democracy. Someone who might say the, fa the very fact that we have a indirect representative democracy rather than a direct democracy where citizens vote directly on policy questions is in itself a problem. And I'm curious what you would respond to someone who's pushing for something that much more dramatic. I think anyone that wants to argue for direct democracy on a national scale needs to spend 10 minutes on Twitter and then make that same case to me with a straight face. It's not a good idea. It has its, it has its merits for sure, but... The idea that you elect someone whose profession is to represent you is not in and of itself a bad idea. The problem comes when they don't actually represent you. When you have when you disenfranchise enough voters in your state that the senator would not actually have won. Or when a president who lost the popular vote by three million becomes president. That it strikes me as the bigger problem. The problem is not that you don't have 300 million people all clamoring to tell you what your trade policy should be. People don't understand that, and nor should they be expected to. You don't have enough time in your day to, to answer these questions with any kind of expertise or authority. There's value in having paid professionals do this. There's value in having mechanisms set up around them, staffs, communication mechanisms. There's value to these things. But it needs to be proportional. You don't get to tell me that Wyoming and Montana deserve the same amount of representation as New York, Texas, California, Florida in anybody. Because you have, there are so many reasons that it's inoperable. For another thing, when you have the Electoral College devalue the votes of people in large states, safe states, not only do California Republicans and Texas Democrats not have their votes for president meaningfully count. The people who support the the ruling parties in those states don't really get to have their votes count votes count in any kind of meaningful way. They could stay home and it would the Democrats would still win California and the Republican candidate would still win Texas. You need to make people's votes equal. You need to have a national popular vote for president. You need to either get rid of the Senate or severely decrease its dis the disparity and the outsized power that it hands to small states. You need ranked choice voting so that people's choices actually happen. You need to give people who have made mistakes resulting in felony convictions. You need to give residents of Washington, D.C., of Puerto Rico, Guam, of the Virgin Islands, the Mar Northern Mariana Islands. You need to give them full voting rights. These are principles we supposedly enshrined a while ago. These are principles we supposedly live by. The idea that we vote and we get representation for those votes 
and then the representation does what we want. It's been long established. It's Some of it's damn near axiomatic, and yet it doesn't happen. And we don't get to pretend that it, it's an accident that it hasn't happened. Well put. Well put. With that, with the, that impassioned speech in defense of the values of democracy and representative government, I want to thank Milton for joining us on this week's episode of New Perspectives to talk about the what you described as the, the culmination of your work as a writer for NUPR. I also want to thank Ariana for joining me as a co-host this week, and I hope that everyone listening sticks around for Ariana and Milton to talk about their favorite classes in Class Struggle. Milton, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Welcome back to our newest segment of Class Struggle, where we here at New Perspectives compete for your extra electives, hosted by me, Ariana Bennett, one of the podcast producers here at Newper. Today, I am joined by Milton, where we learn about a little bit of academic journey into editor-in-chief. Milton, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Ariana. It's nice to be here. Um, and then, so we'll start with what has been your most impactful or your favorite, doesn't have to be most impactful, class here at no Northeastern. I'm going to name a duo here. I had the pleasure of taking Journalism 1 and Journalism 2 with Mr. Jeff Howe. The most impactful, influential, my most favorite teacher that I've had here at Northeastern um, for any number of reasons, but more than anything else, because he makes class interesting and he talks to students as if they're people which is a thing I've, I've had teachers in the past who who talk to students like they were students like they were items to be controlled and their energies marshaled in one way or another and when you have somebody like jeff who who builds a relationship with you and, and cares about your learning and growth in more outside of just his curriculum um it makes it a lot easier to absorb what he's bringing to the table and what he's telling you. And so you wind up with, you know, two, two 10 minute tangents per class that are very instructive and, and educational and meaningful in their own right. And that's when, you know, you found a, a really special professor and it's, it's, it's one thing to be a good professor. It's another thing to be a good teacher. And he's both. Wonderful. I actually have J2 right now with Professor Howe, and I love him. I echo everything that you just said. Um, so this week we've got a special, we have a favorite professor as opposed to a favorite class. And so my next question to you then is how has that class or Professor Howe himself inspired career goals, co-op goals? Where are you looking to go after Newper? Well, where I'm looking to go after Newper is a, a sports casting career which is something I've fallen in love with. I'm sports director for WRBB on campus, and I've been calling especially Northeastern basketball, but also a little bit of hockey too. That's where I want to go with it. What I think, uh, what I think Jeff Howe did for my career aspirations is some overarching lessons that I found have helped me in a wider sense. I think the one that sticks with me most is, bearing in mind this came in a J1 class where you, you're learning about rules and standards for for news writing and he, he drops in almost as an aside as somebody coming from a magazine writing background where you can be more experimental than you can on on the front page of a newspaper he said something to the effect of there is no rule of writing 
that you can't break as long as you have a good enough reason. And so I took this to mean, okay, I can experiment. I can try things. I can try new ways of telling stories. I can bend sentence and paragraph structure over on themselves if I want to, if I have a reason for doing it, if I have a direction. Because what that implies is you have a direction. You know where you're going with this. You know what this is like in your head and where you want to get to. So I had no problem. I, I wrote a, a game recap for, for WRBB where I spent a solid two or three paragraphs at the start of a piece talking about the Crusades. Because at that point, I didn't fear someone coming up to me and saying like, hey, this makes no sense. What are you doing? This is a basketball game. I knew what the segue was going to be. I knew where I wanted to go with it. And it was because Jeff had given me the confidence to, to try things. Wonderful. So our class struggle lesson is twofold, experimentation and confidence. Milton, thank you so much for sticking around with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of New Perspectives. I want to thank Milton for joining us on the show to talk about how the United States fails as a democracy and what can be done to fix it. I also want to thank our producers, Brian Grady and Ariana Bennett, for all of their work both on the mic and behind the scenes to bring new perspectives to you. Make sure to check out nupoliticalreview.com for more from Milton and all of the other great writers contributing to Nuper. If you're a Northeastern student looking to be a guest on the show, feel free to email us at nuprpodcast at gmail.com. We're always looking for new guests, and we'd love to have you on the show. Additionally, if you're interested in publishing an article with NUPR, check out the submission link at the top of nupoliticalreview.com to get started. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of New Perspectives. I hope you all have a great day.